Every once in a while, a product comes along that changes everything, and that product is Aura. Aura is an easy-to-use app that includes everything families need to protect their identities, money, passwords, devices, and more. It's really easy to set up and has everything you need, so you don't have to download seven separate apps to get things like parental controls, antivirus, ID theft, and transaction monitoring, and more. You get everything at one affordable price. What makes Aura different, you say? It's simple to set up. It protects against today's and tomorrow's threats, and with parental controls to let your kids explore the internet safely, filter harmful sites, apps, and manage screen time easily. Online safety for today's digital safety. It's tech that grows with you and your family. Browse safely, surf smartly. Aura comes packed with all the tools you need to protect you and your family from the online threats you can't see. Our listeners will get a 14-day free trial of Aura for individuals, couples, or their family by going to aura.com slash potential. That's Aura, spelled A-U-R-A, dot com slash potential. Once again, get your first 14-day free trial of Aura by going to aura.com slash potential. Protect what's important. Proactive protection for your assets, identity, family, and tech across every device. And remember, know your potential. Do you ever constantly feel like you're falling behind and can never catch up and the stress and anxiety are taking over? Are you used to being productive and efficient, but lately you've been feeling sluggish and unable to stay focused for more than a few minutes at a time? Looking for an alternate choice to cut back on those energy drinks and giant cups of coffee? Then we've got the choice for you. Try Neuro. Neuro is a brand of gum and mints used to energize, calm, and focus whenever you need it. Neuro was developed by former athletes training at the highest level who didn't want to take mysterious supplements or energy drinks when studying, training, or going out. Instead of something sugary and ineffective, they wanted to create clean, balanced energy that could be taken anywhere, anytime. With thoughtfully curated ingredients and endless lab testing, means that you can reach the right state of mind safely and consistently. Get that clean burst of energy and focused without the effects of coffee or energy drinks. It's a smart way to fuel body and mind. Stay in the zone, avoid the jitters and crashing. Our listeners will get an automatic discount of up to 20% off on any gum or mint products using our link, tryneurogum.com slash potential. That's try. N-E-U-R-O gum dot com slash potential. Once again, that's trynerogum.com slash potential. Order now. Get that clean burst of energy and focus. And remember, know your potential. Talking all things entertainment, pop culture, and nerdum. This is the Potential Podcast. Potential Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Potential Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Dewar, and I'm joined by my co-host and fellow lover of film, Taylor Sokol. How you doing, Taylor? Doing well. You know, it's actually funny. We, uh, not funny, haha, but interesting. 
uh, a little while ago, we celebrated the 100th birthday of Marcel Marceau, you know, famous mime. Yeah, so I saw him Google. They had a little. Uh, yeah, a little thing. I there. was like, oh, yeah, that's him. Yeah. So this next five minutes is going to be a dedication to Marcel Marceau. Okay, that was it. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, that was riveting. <laughs> I was really For those who got that. Great. Yeah. For those who didn't look him up. Yeah, exactly. Um, he was a uh, mime, but, folks. He was a mime. But good, man. Uh, it's you know really exciting. Just had a great visit with you in LA. Thank you so Dude, much. So uh, always so good to see you. And uh, I'm sure it was nice to have a a little bit of warmth. We had a better week this week. We've had so much rain and wind tons, lately. Tons of rain. Like more than California's had for like years. Like yeah. Usually out here, it's like we'll get a good rain for a few mm-hmm. days, and then it won't yeah. rain again for months. It's been like a few days of sun. Rain, rain, rain. A few days of sun. Rain, rain, rain. It's like who's been playing Jumanji? What is going on here? You know, yes. who, oh man, who drew the monsoon card over here? Yeah. I mean, we do need it. I always say that you know California does need it because when it's in a drought, it's just like where did the rain go? But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's so good to see you. And you know, one thing that you and I have always uh, really what was the initial spark of our friendship was, um, spark. What, yeah. was our love of film, our love mm-hmm. of film and television and video games and. We would always do little, you know, impressions to each other and quote movies, especially Jim Carrey. Um, it's just crazy to think again that you and I are celebrating 10 years of friendship this year. Yes. We would have met 10 years ago, uh, you know, this month of yeah. April, I was uh, in Vegas rehearsing for mm-hmm. 2013. My goodness. Yeah. Crazy 10 years ago. But uh, yeah. Yeah, we've always loved film, and of course, a lot of that influenced starting on this podcast. So, mm-hmm. which leads me to our guest today, and this yes. is an exciting one. Um, this guy, someone I could talk to forever. I feel oh, like, yeah. uh, because not only is he a someone that's passionate about film, he himself is a filmmaker, and uh, he is a big part of the indie world. And he's made some wonderful shorts, and he's currently working on a full length feature of one of his shorts that has been celebrated at festivals everywhere, Tim Travers and the Time Traveler's Paradox. Some big-name actors. So we got to sit down and have a chat with him all about his love of film, his filmmaking style, and all the projects he's worked on and future projects. So get ready for a wonderful conversation with director, writer, and producer Stimson Sneed. Well, welcome, Stimson, to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Uh, it's good to be here indeed. <laughs> Are you guys enjoying the L.A. rain as much as I am? <laughs> I am also uh, an L.A. guy, and it's been crazy. I mean, today I was at work, and uh, it started raining, then it got sunny, then the wind came out, then it rained again. <laughs> uh, this is California in a nutshell, but yeah, we've had more rain the last few weeks than we've had in years. It's uh, been quite a lot, so enjoy it while we can. We do need it. I, don't, I think my favorite part is watching all the native Los Angelites just freak out like it's death from the skies. Like, uh, I'm out of Seattle originally. Remember that bit in Dark Knight Rises with his like, you found the dark. I was born in the dark. That's how I feel about rain <laughs> yeah. in Los Angeles. I was born in this. Yeah, you're used to it. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for being on the podcast today. We're very excited to talk to you. So, uh, Taylor, hit us off. I mean, we have a lot to talk about. Absolutely. So... Getting right into it, Simpson, when did you realize that you wanted to get into filmmaking? I got to be honest, I can't remember a time that I wasn't in the filmmaking. It's the it's the job I wanted to do 
basically the moment I found out that the job I wanted when I was eight, which was Penguin Explorer, didn't exist, which was a deep shock to eight-year-old me. But basically from that point on, it's always been film. I was that weird kid all the way as soon as I could drive myself back in high school who would go to the movies by himself and not get made fun of for it. Like it was just part of the culture. Folks just knew that's what I was into. And then uh, in late grade school, my mom decided there would never be any TV in the house. So she had three TVs and a VCR and a DVD player. So the logic was if it was worth watching, it was worth owning. So I ended up rarely getting into television. I didn't watch a lot of episodic stuff. It was movies, movies, movies. And there was a movie rentals right by the junior high, which was also across the street from the high school in Sammamish Plateau where I grew up. And so I would just be walking in every day after class, renting two or three movies. It was just my thing. Wow. I love that. Well, okay. Going off of that, because I think obviously there's something about part of your youth that influences that. Were there certain specific films or favorite films or filmmakers that you started to get attracted to that kind of made you realize apart from the enjoyment entertainment value oh there's a craft to this there's just something that i would like to pursue honestly as a kid no not at all i was into just certain types of stories it didn't really matter who it came from and i was always a sucker for the story that makes me lose myself in that story world so as I got older and I figured out how to articulate those feelings better, it really became, it's one of the reasons I end up having a certain affection for the good B-movies. And I define a good B-movie as something where, yes, its budget is paltry and low, but it still takes itself seriously and it's executing its idea well. Like, that's the stuff I found myself getting into all the time as a kid. And then as I got older... Then I started being drawn to more specific filmmakers. Once I was in my late teens, I was into your Finchers, your Tarantinos. Uh, I went absolutely gaga because I was a theater kid for everything Julie Taymor ever did. Still crazy about her stuff. Even when, when her stuff fails, it fails in a way that makes the rest of us be amazed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can only hope to do a bad movie as good as her bad movies one day. Oh, I love that. I love that. So, you know, we're a big part of this episode is talking about in the indie film world and the indie world of filmmakers is unique pool of artists. Um, case in point, we have, we have you, which we're, you know, a prime example. Could you kind of explain that to us and kind of talk a little bit about the indie world of filmmaking? I, I think the first thing when people bring up the word indie is it's worth defining what we mean by the word indie film. Because you'll see films with Academy Award nominated actors in it who call themselves an indie film. Um, the basic, and honestly, the definition is pretty loose at this point in the industry. The most common version is it means it was made outside the studio system. So any film that wasn't already made with distribution in place. A star, if anything Disney makes already has its distribution in place. Now, an example of an indie film would be Coda, which took Best Picture last year because there was no distribution in place. It was something they had to take to film festival and then sell. Now they made Bank. And that's kind of how I kind of define the indie world. But the thing about indie is that encompasses a lot. Going back to Coda, that was a well-respected film from a well-respected director starring, I'm spacing on his name, but he's considered one of the most famous actors in the world from Mexico as the music teacher, um, spacing on the actress's name, the uh, deaf 
the deaf actress who has been in 50 million things, but it already had a lot of prestige going into it. So even though that was an indie film, that was an indie film that had some muscle behind it. And then you get into the more lower end stuff. And if you keep digging into the lower end, you'll find some that'll have a, a few small celebrity attaches. Then you'll find some where you're getting into the half a million range, where it's something where the director is just starring themselves. And if you keep digging all the way down to the bottom of the bucket, you will find the people I look up at from my, my position. But all of that is the indie world. And what we're all trying to do on the indie side is to make the product that we can take to those studios and sell. And the good news is there's a lot of ways to sell a film, but it's always a gamble. It's a humongous gamble for us on the indie scene because we have no idea if we're ever going to make our money back. And it's typically our own money we had to spend to do it. So unlike the studio, it's kind of a big deal if you don't sell it. Yeah. <laughs> so is that, I guess, going off of that, does for the world of indie filmmaking, are festivals the big important part of that then of... Is that where mostly you're going to try to sell a film? Or are there other ways besides festivals? Yes and no. Festivals are not the big deal they used to be in the old days. Now you have a handful of festivals who really, and if you're in Sundance, if you're in your Tribeca's, Con, um, South by Southwest, then you're going to be into areas where you can make a real sell. Unfortunately, a lot of the market for festivals is kind of oversaturated and you just simply don't get distributors who buy stuff selling up at them. They're not really market fairs in the way that they used to be. That's not to say festivals are bad. For folks like me, we live and breathe for festivals because what a festival can do is give you a lot of press. It gets a lot of people talking about your film, which is something that you can use to get reviews, to get attention, to get it to those other distributors. Every award you rank up is something that I can put onto a letterhead and it gets me a meeting. And a lot of distributors just skip that phase entirely. So what you'll typically do is go through sales agents and stuff like that. And sales agents will sell your film to certain territories for X dollars in Germany, X amount of dollars in the UK, holding on to the markets that they think are going to be the most valuable, which if you're an American filmmaker is probably going to be America. And so you do it that way. But so festivals are still a big deal, a part of that. And the other nice thing about festivals is it is a psychological reward. You you throw so much of yourself into these projects which nine times out of 10, especially if it's a short film, is never going to see the light of day. Yeah. These festivals are your chance to take it and get it seen by an audience. And it's the most willing, receptive audience you can find. So while I'm not convinced that a lot of the mid-tier festivals are great for selling a film, they are still great. Just not for the financial side. <laughs> but you get that rewarding experience of seeing these people that are eager to, to see these filmmakers and their final products. So, I mean, at least... On that side, but yeah, like you are big gamblers because you've got to put your heart and soul in there. It's like you don't you don't have the you don't know if you're like you're gonna make the profit or not, you know, or what's gonna happen with it. Well, it's also great for networking and folks. So uh the feature film I just came off of Tim Travers stars a guy named Samuel Dunning. Samuel Dunning's a relatively unknown actor, but who I met at a film festival. We were both on a panel together. So weirdly enough, in spite of working together a few years now, we have a photograph of the two of us within two minutes of when we first met each other, just sitting on a panel together. But I liked his acting style so much. I hit it off talking to him and hanging out with him after the fact. There was just a genuine rapport and a connection there. Then when it came time to do the short film, Tim Travers, I cast him out the gate. He won 
several different acting awards for it and the short film itself overperformed so by the time we got around to the feature it was already a given he would be the star of that film and that's another huge thing you can get out of festivals is it lets you network with potential collaborators and ones who you really respect like sam dunn i love that i love that sam if you're listening i love you (laughs) shout out to sam uh going off of that do you feel in terms of distribution and just you know we've seen kind of a growth in this. You think the world of streaming has made more opportunities for indie films or shorts to be seen and that there has been more of a pocket for like, yes, we're going to include all the movies that you've seen come out in the theater, but now we're also having some more stuff like, Oh, if you know this person, you could see this on this platform. Has that made any growth for that as well? Yes, absolutely. The number of options available to indie filmmakers now is better than it's ever been. The flip side of that coin is because there's a lot more options for getting it out there, there's also a lot more groups who are going to try to take your film and not actually pay you for it. So it's a two-sided coin. Personally, I think it's for the better. The downside for a lot of folks like me is the streaming services have replaced the indie theaters. Even 10 years ago, it wasn't that uncommon to go to an AMC and you would see your avatars, your Star Wars, but it would also be one or two indie films you never heard of. You don't see that at all anymore, sadly. And so what a lot of those streaming services will do, let's say you sell it to something like Netflix, is they're going to put you in a theater in the middle of nowhere for a week just for the sake of calling your film a theatrical release. And let me tell you, if that ever happens to one of my film, I will be at every screening in the middle of (laughs) Backwoods, Alabama. <laughs> love it. Love Even it. If I'm the only one in the audience. Actually, no, that would be a really depressing experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I take that back. That that sounds awful. <laughs> well, I, you mentioned uh, Tim Travis, which we're going to get into that. But I want to, first of all, um, talk about Spirit, a Martian story. Yes. Uh, that was distributed by the Aldrin Family Foundation. Yes, Buzz Aldrin's family won the best science fiction short at the 2020 Chicago Southland International Film Festival. Um, how did you come up with the story? And can you tell us about how, how did real science inspire the film? Well, I didn't come up with the story is the short answer to that. The, (laughs) the wonderful still running web comic XKCD came up with the story. In fact, it's a one page comic that he did about the spirit rover that passes away. And it was released into the creative commons. Although I also reached out to his group, although I never did get to speak to him directly. Randall, if you're watching, I've been trying to get you to watch this thing for years. (laughs) Uh, But it was just one that I felt passionate about that I wanted to adapt. And it was only a one-page comic, but I expanded that out into about a 15, 20-minute film. And I decided I would lay it, overlay it with tons of different educational materials. Basically, using the joke of his comic, which is that the rover talks and is personified, but use that to actually tell the complete story of the spirit rover. And it kind of just grew and grew and grew. I was eventually able to get Steve Squires to do a lot of the Q&A on it. He was the uh, scientific lead on this mission. He was also in a recent documentary about opportunity uh, on Discovery, I think, right now. Uh, Also about those rovers. And I was able to get Tara Strong to do the voice of Spirit herself. Oh, my gosh. Oh, and she's wonderful. Voice acting royalty and just, like, what what an amazing person I hear. Oh, It was vaguely surreal because Tara has a thing where she will 
drop into random voices of characters she's done over the years <laughs> while you're talking to her. And if you're a kid of our age group, it's like, oh, that's Raven. Oh, that's Bubbles. That's you can you can hear the specific characters wow. coming out in random phrases. From that's her. like us on the podcast. Chris and I are always just dropping in impressions and stuff here and there. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's got all those yeah, voices in her head. She's yeah, they have to come out somehow, you know. Yeah. And she was very kind about my awful temp track. I originally did the audio myself and an awful temp track. And she uh, resisted the urge to make fun of me. And I appreciated that immensely. Consummate professional. <laughs> exactly. And believe me, I would. It, it wasn't good. My temp track was not good at all. <laughs> but yeah, so we did Spirit. And because it was a Creative Commons project, because I originally based on SKXD, in spite of how much I had expanded it out, it was never going to be a for-profit project. So I had already, so I, which made the distribution really easy because it made it clear, all right, who are the groups I want to support? I had heard about the Aldrin Foundation just on an NPR uh, story, and I reached out to them directly, um, got on the phone. We hit it off, and they made it part of their academic materials, and you can see Spirit on their website right now. Wow. Yeah. So cool. But in that case, the fact that it was nonprofit made the distribution much easier because it it made it very clear what my goals were for it. And for me, it was getting it in front of kids. And so it was structured as a kid's film to be very educational, but family friendly and be just a little bit emotionally sad and sadistic because, you know, anytime you can make a kid cry, it's a plus. <laughs> cry from from learning. That's that's always yes. That's the plus. Yeah. Didn't Disney say it's, you know, he wanted to scare kids in his films. So he had to have some fear. I think that was Don Bluth, actually. Oh, okay. Like, oh, yes. Bluth, that, like, makes that makes sense. That makes way more sense. <laughs> yeah, I think Don Bluth's thing was as long as he gave them a happy ending, he could get away with pretty much everything else in the meantime. <laughs> I mean, there's, now, a, there's yeah. a filmmaker who I loved as a kid. I grew oh, up. Here. So a little, bit of, a little bit of darkness you need just to, you know, the world's not always a safe place. I, I think it's something we're missing in a lot of kids' films today, to be honest. I... Whenever I see kids and family films, there seems to be this allergy to darkness or that every kid's film must have a certain amount of humor and silliness to it. Whereas back in the 90s, kids' films were their own subgenres. You had your kids' drama, um, Secret Garden, Free Willy. You had your kids' sports movies, uh, Sandlot, or the one about soccer that I'm spacing on. The big green? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but you also even had your kids' horror films, stuff like Monster Squad. Okay, that's more 80s, admittedly. But even Hocus Pocus is a film that, as much as we look at it laughingly now, has scenes that are unironically scary yeah. to kids of a certain age. And that type of storytelling for kids' films seems to have gone away. Like, everything is this certain speed, and I, I despise it, because... There's so much more we could be doing for kids. We could be scaring them so much. We could scare them better. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's my big beef, too, with, like, lately Disney has, uh, there's no longer really, like, true Disney villains. Yeah. There is kind of, like, a, something happening in the film, but there's not really a villain. And I'm like, I grew up on strong Disney villains. Yeah, Jafar and Scar and all You don't these, get that uh, anymore. No. It's sad. Yeah. Um, but, yes, I, I do agree with you. There has been a a change in Hollywood and uh, hopefully it's, it's, it's a need for safety. There's just, it's coddling in a lot of these things. And it's, it's so interesting. These kids that are like, but that movie, I'm like, you didn't see the movies that I grew up on. Yeah, exactly. But I want to, yeah. you know, go off topic with that. I, I do want to um, 
ask you what is and talk to us about Lab Rats. Lab Rats. So I did the short film, Tim Travers, and my logic was this is going to be this short film did really well. What can I do with this short? I got an idea. I'll I'll make a film anthology. I don't have the money to fund a feature on my own right now. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah, um, we will. Yeah. My thinking at the time was I don't have the ability to pull together a full feature. What I do have the ability to do is do a really well-budgeted short film, maybe one a year. And if I keep all of them at a certain quality, using Tim Travers as my standard bearer, then I could eventually make an anthology feature out of it. Ah. And so Tim Travers is going to so right well. So it's like, all right, let's do Lab Rats, which is about two people who are abducted by aliens and are going crazy in a giant human-sized rat cage. Ooh. We literally built the four transparent walls. There is a fully functioning seven foot tall hamster wheel <laughs> that is used multiple times. Little wow. cooler, sort That's of shredded fantastic. clothing all across the floor, little hammock bed. And it's about how they're going nuts on the various medications the aliens are giving them. <laughs> so they figure out a way to escape. And this was going to be part two of my anthology. Until I realized that I was going to take the short film Tim Travers and turn that into a feature film, and we stole all the props from Lab Rats that we had already filmed. So the hamster wheel has gotten a lot of screen time in the past year of my life. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got to make use of it, right? I mean, come on. Let's oh, go yeah. Put that sucker to use. Um, it's well, great. For- it's a death trap, but it's great. <laughs> it's an interesting. That's an interesting premise, though, and I love the idea of we're i think we're so used to the story of the alien abduction and it's just straight to the probing it's always the the go-to but actually to be these humans in a maze i think that's kind of creepy and kind of fun (laughs) well i liked the idea of just sometimes the obvious thing taken to the extreme can be the most interesting and i really just like the idea humans in a rat cage what can i get out of that what kind of drama and a lot of it's figuring what the story is going to be. So what the story ended up being about is drug dependency. Oh, wow. So okay. Very nice. It starts with the gal who's been there since day one of the invasion. Uh, as she, she refers to herself as one of the OG abductees. <laughs> so crazy. she's one of the famous Badge ones. of honor there, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so she's been on the drugs basically since day one because all the food, water, and toilet paper is laced with it. Oh. Mm. And... She's and it's about her going through withdrawal so they can figure out how to escape. And then because just rule of threes, if you're going to do a film this weird and this calm, even as a short film, and it's a fairly languidly paced, just kind of feeling out its own weirdness, you've got to go nuts in the third act, which is when we finally see the aliens. And I'll give someone spoiler. They're tiny rat people in a cage. The aliens are just exactly what you would expect with rats in a cage. Okay. Okay. All right. Interesting. So uh, <laughs> this is great. So we've, we've been we've been talking and hinting about um, you know Tim Travers. So you are you're working on this full length adaptation of your short Tim Travers and the Time Travers Paradox with Danny Trejo, Joe McHale, Felicia Day. Wow, that's this is awesome. Tell us and Keith how- David. <laughs> oh, Keith David. Okay. Oh man. Yes. And. Tell us how how that's been going and, you know, all the excitement of, you know, this first big full length film here. Well, I had originally a different feature I was going to do. And then when the funding fell through, we still had our production window. We still had the crew. We still had the stages. So it was one of those moments of, all right, 
The funding is gone for the film I wanted to do. This is now or never. What do I have that I can do right now? And I mean right now that I'm going to take a big gamble with. And I think thought about it. Tim Travers had been cleaning up so much at the festivals that as much as I had thought of it originally as part of the anthology, this is as close to a market test as I'm ever going to get. Started working on the script. Two months from the decision to make the film, we were rolling camera on day one. Whoa. Two months. Two months. Dang. Wrapped us three and a half weeks later after that. That's fantastic. Wow. Wow. We're now well into post-production. We had days where we were casting because we were moving so fast. We were casting uh, some of these celebrities in at least one case less than 72 hours before they showed up on set. It was when the offer was made to one of them. That's how fast (laughs) Uh, the turnaround was. Like, we literally had an entire separate set of unknown backup actors who were great, by the way, uh, just in case. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah. Wow. So the film that's a, came that's together. a short window. That's a really yeah, short window. Yes, it is. There's windows <laughs> yeah. and then there's that. That's you know, yeah. geez. Yeah, we wrapped three days before Christmas. Okay, so just yeah, just a few months ago. Yeah. Uh now we're in post-production. And in that time that we we're doing the pre-production, we had to rebuild all of our sets. So the original short film is just the time machine in an empty warehouse, and it's a 24-and-a-half-foot monstrosity that we physically built this thing. It's not a special effect. It's wired up. It's very real, the time machine. But for the feature, because so much time compared to a 20-minute short has to be in this room, we had to build an entire mad scientist laboratory. So we had these massive radiation chambers, formerly known as the rat cage. (laughs) The hamster wheel brought that back, brought in all these weird laboratory experiments. And I remember calling up the set designer, Vincent Felix, phenomenal builder, and just being like, hey, you remember that time machine that nearly killed you to build last year? (laughs) I, I kind of need you to build it a second time, <laughs> except, you know, even bigger, <laughs> bigger with more detail work. And so they made a digital model of it, which they then built a physical one in real life off of. But the fun thing about the digital model is we can make 3D prints of it for anybody who wants them. So this is my time machine. Oh, oh cool. Nice. And Tim Travers. For those of you, uh, this is the audio portion. He's showing this is awesome model. Wow. And for scale, a human being stands about this big next to the real one we built. Okay, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Very so it's practically scraping against the ceiling of the warehouse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so it was all kind of just a really firing from the hip. Um, our editor, Jason McKee, who's working on it right now, we're getting close within the next couple of weeks of already locking in the final cut before we then have to send it off to effects for another eight months <laughs> because this thing is wall-to-wall special effects. Wow. Yeah. How long, r- roughly right now, not knowing the exact final cut, so you said the short film was roughly 20 minutes. How long is this final feature roughly going to be looking at now? It's going to be flirting with an hour 45. Okay. Is where hour 45. Is. And only 17 days. <laughs> That's how long. That's such a short shoot. My gosh. But that's that's got to be such an exciting feeling of this project you worked on for it to take off to the point of okay now we're gonna we're gonna I feel like this has been a thing that I've I've seen a lot happen in Hollywood where we've had these shorts that then a studio's got a notion of or taken interest in and then be like 
make that, but now make it longer. You know, we had like like the one I think of come to my head is um the guy just directed uh the, the Shazam movies with Lights Out, how there was like a short film and then make it a bigger. This has to be such an exciting thing to see this project now get a full feature and to see what that could, you know, where that could take you. Well, and that's where it gets back to the whole world of being an indie filmmaker, because part of indie filmmaking is it is a business. You're trying to survive to the next gig. Now, when you're doing a short, a lot of doing a short is a vanity. Uh, I don't mean that in a negative because it's how you meet other actors. It's how you get basically you beef up your own reputation. But it's not something you expect to profit on. Doing the feature, by comparison, is of such a huger financial investment. It's better not even to think of it as a film. It's better to think of it as a business loan, which is how it's paid for, by the way. Like, there is a full-on investment that has to get made into this. That's why it's so important on the indie scene, why you bring in folks like Felicia Day, Joel McHale, Danny Trejo, Keith David, because each one of them is going to pay a play a key role in how you get this film out there and seen. If nothing else, it's going to make it where potential distributors, just because the name value, are going to take the meeting and see what's there. Then, because the film's good, I, I said in my completely unbiased view. Of course, <laughs> of course. Because I'm very trustworthy on that front. I wouldn't lie. <laughs> I would tell you if it sucked. <laughs> uh, but that way I can get them to see the film, they like the film, and then we can get it out there in distribution. And it makes it where folks who have never heard of it are going to take at least a minute longer to think about watching it. And all of that plays in to just getting folks to get the film seen so that we can all move on to our next film and do another one. Yeah, such an interesting, it's like that constant, you're, you're hoping this one hits so then you can do the next one. And is this something, Is is I know you're right now you're just working on this, you know, the post- production is tim travers something you could see doing more of if this would take off like a potential you know sequel or something or once this is kind of settled and done you want to move on to completely new projects i don't believe in trying to plan franchise filmmaking for indie films because one it's pretty rare i'm sure <laughs> it's more than rare it's the kind of thing where it's like it's like the it's like the little kid talking about why he's going to be a great lawyer to the big lawyer. The studios are the big studios. Let them do their thing. I'm rooting for them. That doesn't mean I couldn't see more of the character. But Tim Travers is a very complete story. Okay. okay. It tells the story he needs to tell. I could easily see myself revisiting the character, but we would have to abandon basically everything we did in this first ah, song to revisit okay. the character. It would have to be an entirely new idea. For me as an artist, when I'm doing a film, the whole reason to inflict this hell upon myself to do something like this <laughs> yeah. is because it has to be an idea that stimulates the brain. Mm -hmm. It has to be an idea that makes me... It's one of the reasons sci-fi is my go-to genre. It's what is something that makes me just go, ooh, that's an interesting thought. Where would that go? Yeah, and that's what you were saying is taking you know, situations like and then flipping on its head or like a new angle because there's so much... There's still so much untapped areas in all these different genres. And that's kind of cool, though, that science fiction is your niche because there's still a lot to be unexplored, uh, no pun intended. Exactly. And it's one of those genres that you're not really required to have a happy ending. There is an expectation in sci-fi that you can have a little bit more freedom. So for me, as I like the thought experiment, the what if, and then kind of just letting myself follow where that what if goes. And then because of my own creative inspirations, and you guys were asking about this earlier, I've always been drawn to the sci-fi comedy. So Futurama, uh, my all-time favorite show is Red Dwarf, but a lot of those sort of shows that liked playing with a what if 
and kind of going hard on it. Well, I wanted to move on to this is actually interesting for me because I've I've dabbled in enough that I'm it's an interesting premise here. You wrote a screenplay called The Dogs and you're now adapting it to a graphic novel, which I think that's got to be very interesting. So tell us how did The Dogs come about and why now the decision to adapt it into a graphic novel? Uh, the Dogs is an old script from mine. This is one I did almost 10 years ago, and then I kind of polished and improved it, and I eventually took it out the stu- studios. And because of what was happening in the wider world at the time, I want to stress I was not trying to tap in on anything. I just had good timing to okay. get people to pay attention. But it's a story uh, about a planet caught between two warring factions in a Star Wars-style civil war in which one of the two factions is basically locked in a 1940s mentality of sexism and racism. They show up one day, and they want to make sure that this planet can't take a side, so they kill off the entire male population and decimate the resources and promptly leave. Because in their minds, there's nothing women would be able to do to reprise. We cut to about 15 years later, where the women have been basically struggling by on sheer force of will when a group of experimental starfighters crash land on their planet. They commandeer it, they start their own pirate colony, and they position themselves to be the third party between these two warring factions that all the different groups who don't want to be caught at either extreme can come and ally with. And it just landed at a very good time for the subject matter. Uh, And then what happened when I took it out to studios is I got uniformly positive feedback with the caveat that I would never, ever sell it (sighs) because it would be a hundred million dollar budget conservatively. And you can't do that if it's not a pre-existing property. So I sat on it for one or two years, uh, then got a hold of a guy named Steve Stern. He's the creator behind Zen Intergalactic Ninja, if you remember that from back in the day. And he organized and produced an adaptation to graphic novel form that we're now shopping around to publishers. Wow. So also we're going to be releasing it online in webcomic form. That's really cool. I wish someone would make that. That sounds like a great story and very timely for uh, today with uh, everything that's going on and then especially the States, but. And entirely accidental. I, I would love to say that. This was me trying to discuss the important issues of the day. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> nope. No, it, it, it was not. It sounds awesome. 100% cards on the table there. <laughs> well, is there something too with, um, I mean, you're, you're, you, for someone that didn't grow up with episodic uh, TV much and you were more obviously interested in films, we discuss on this podcast all the time about how certain films, they almost feel like they have to rush certain things or, you know, they, it, it's only two hours you're going to get. How so many, so much more stories told now with these television shows that are an eight episode, ten episode, episodic kind of series. Do you think the dogs would ever fit something like that if it, you know, ever it was ever to be made? Because I feel like it, it could, you know, it could. I think it absolutely could. Where I'll push back a little bit with a lot of episodic television and where I like films better is yes, there's room for more story. But I also find myself asking a lot of the time that I need that extra story. Filler. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I can think of almost no shows, even the really great stuff that's come out in the last 10 years, that there wasn't at least a few things where it's like, this was padding out a runtime. And particularly with TV shows that I don't like. Now, there's a lot of exceptions to this. Let me stress that. This is not a uniform criticism of television. Uh, but I like an ending. 
And a lot of shows are always setting up the next season because that's the business model. The business model is not to have you pay, watch a thing, and hopefully you liked it enough that you'll pay for something else in the future. The business model is to keep you watching. They are actively incentivized to not end their own narrative. So a lot of the time, the narrative will go off the air, typically when either the studio is bored with it or the creators are bored with it. And you'll get rushed endings like Game of Thrones, or you'll get shows canceled before their time. And Game of Thrones is a perfect example. It's worth pointing out that everything wrong with that last season is nothing to do with the plot. All the pieces that happened in that last season were foreshadowed from season one. The only reason they didn't stick the landing was they crammed too much in to it because the creators wanted to move on. But it was nothing to do with the actual story structure. And that tends to what happens even with great, great shows. Whereas a movie, with the exception of your big Marvel DC style things, which are trying basically trying to be episodic movies, um, a movie has to give you an ending. And it's very rare that one doesn't. And I appreciate that. And I, and especially your take on Game of Thrones, because no one's really, there's been talk about stuff like that. But no, I can, I can definitely agree that seeing, looking back on all the great shows that I've enjoyed, Chris and I both love both shows and movies alike. Um, I will say like, at least the shows that are doing these limited series where it's literally, okay, eight episodes and then it's done. I do kind of like that knowing like, that that's a new way of doing shows where I don't think that's becoming more tapped into, especially kind of these um, not really crime docs, but a lot of stuff like they've done with like uh, Pam and Tommy or welcome to Chippendales where it's, you know, based on some, based on truth. And it's like, this is a one story. That's it. Um, but again, like you say, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or even last of us, uh, everyone's talking about another season right now, which to me, I desperately hope they don't. They adapted the game beautifully. They told the complete story well. I'm in, I, I'm like the one person who enjoys that show, but really wants them to be like, well, you did it. Nailed it. It was a national <laughs> event. Please stop. And we know they won't because I they know. made another game and they're going to make that two seasons at least. Yeah, but that game took place 10 years after the original game. In the yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's I think it's four. It's a four year gap, I believe, in the in the story. Which that right up there is one thing where it's like, are they just gonna pick up like it's the next day? Or are they gonna yeah I, fill in those four years? Who knows? But it is it is. I guess it's interesting. Is from a filmmaking standpoint, we are seeing what feels like more attention to strong filmmaking put to television as opposed to just. Here's entertainment for the after work audience. Um, the production value, and I don't just mean in terms of money, but artistic styling, television, there is no distinguishable difference between television and film right now in terms of artistic creative value. That distinction is gone, with the exception of, of Young Sheldon. That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> I will take your word for it. I have not watched it. Uh, I was a Big Bang Theory uh for a while and yeah so i will definitely uh take your word for that um but speaking of creativity um with tim travers and 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 you know the future of filmmaking you know what are your future goals what are your projects what can you tease what's some stuff that you're you know, thinking about whether it be shorts or you know what's after tim travers more full-length features what's up for uh, hopefully 
at this point, it's all features from here if I can help it. So right now we're shopping around the book, The More Child, which I presently control the film rights to. Well, tell us about that story. Yeah. Uh, the More Child is about a changeling child. It's by the wonderful novelist Eloise McGraw. Uh, and it was a Newbery Award winner. And it's about in the Celtic in medieval Ireland, uh, Scotland, what happens when a child is replaced with an elf and growing up not knowing what she is. And it becomes honestly a commentary on what we would now describe as being coded for someone who's spectrum. But it's a really fascinating, and if you can get to the last chapter of the book without crying, you're a stronger man than I. <laughs> that's So that's cool. one which I would love to see. Uh, I've got, it's one of those things where you typically have two or three projects you're shopping around. The big one is the one I originally wanted to film instead of Tim Travers last year. So right now our goal is to kind of do a one-two punch, sell Tim Travers and move into that film, which is called Treat Street. Uh, about a group, Treat Street's a, a wonderful little uh, horror film for kids. Going back to what I was talking ah, about. Yeah. We need, we need to scare the films for kids. <laughs> yes. I love uh, it. That's the main stuff. Because Tim Travers is my first feature, it is, to be perfectly honest, a long road before you get to the second feature. Because you've got to, one, I have to get this thing finished. We're still just in post-production and we're going to be there for most of the coming year. Then we have to sell it. Then after selling it, it has to get seen. I'm not, not going to lie. I may be having a lot of downtime this coming year. But hopefully I'll be traveling around film festivals showing off lab rats in the meantime which is in its final months of production. That's going to be ready for distribution in just a few months. Oh, great. So. You got your, ha you got your hands full. Maybe we'll get some good news from the dogs. Or nothing. Um, fingers crossed. Is there, I, I guess, my last question before we get to our guest questions. Is there a little bit of the love of the risk? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have to be glad. I think there's that artistic, you know, it's it's really with anything you create is there's that desire of, I know there's, there's a part of me that logistically knows that this may never see the light of day or may not be appreciated the way that I would hope for, but there's also that side that knows that it could be, and it could be great. So I have to make it. You know? Half the joy of working in the arts is the fact that you never know. Yeah. I remember, so I graduated college back in 09, immediately after the crash of 08. I was the only artist in my circle of friends, and I remember everyone freaking out about, oh my God, all these jobs you thought were going to be there are gone. What are we going to do? We're never going to have a regular job. It's all going to be gigs. And all I could say and think was, welcome to what I've been planning my whole life, mother <laughs> <laughs> Had zero impact on me whatsoever. Yeah. I knew I knew I was going into a world of perpetual unemployment and risk. That's that's part of the sign-up fee to film. So whenever you get to do the big swing, it's a blast. So yeah, Tim Travers... I've made my peace with the fact that I may be doing nothing at all for the next year or so, except talking to good folks like yourself. But I'm looking for what happens after that when the film is finally out there. And I'm biding my time like a gazelle. Well, that's good. And yeah, you don't rush anything. So we're definitely uh, hoping for some great success with that. And we uh, we thank you, Stimson, for coming on today to talk uh, all about your your filmmaking and your career. But we can't let you go just yet. No, yeah, absolutely. We, we, we've been asking you a bunch of questions, but now we actually have our quick little five podcast questions. Uh, and these are just questions about you. And this is actually kind of interesting because some of them are uh, a little bit more into filmmaking. But uh, starting off, if you have one specific one, you might have multiple. I always have multiple. But what is a favorite movie 
I would argue one of the most perfect examples of genre filmmaking ever made is Men in Black, the first one. Oh, yeah. All right. It is a film that hits every note. It is such a perfect combination of big ideas, good humor, good emotional arc, that three separate times they have tried to recreate the magic, and three times they have failed miserably. It is a testament to how good that first film is, that even with all the same people coming back twice— they still haven't been able to get it right again. Men in Black was a lightning strike moment, but if you enjoy high concept that manages to have a really engaging multiple art, a genuinely terrifying villain, and being funny as hell, as some also some of the best music Danny Elfman ever wrote. Mm-hmm. Hell, I like that music so much. We've literally been using the music from Men in Black for the temp track on Tim Travers. <laughs> okay, nice. <laughs> That should tell you a lot about what the tone of Tim Travers is. Uh, I like it. Well, this is a next question is going to be interesting because um, (laughs) of your opinion and, you know, thought and preference for film, but what is a favorite TV series of yours? Or if you had to pick one, I'm sure this is an easy answer. Oh yeah. uh, Red Dwarf. If I was only able to watch one show the rest of my life trapped on a desert Island, it would be Red Dwarf. All 12 seasons and a movie of it. My God, it's, it's still going. It's been going since the 80s. They do like one new season every three years. Uh, Red Dwarf is a show that stopped being funny to me 20 years ago. I can quote every single line of it. It is my comfort food. And as my, to the point where if my, if my girlfriend comes by and sees me watching it, it's like, honey, are you okay? <laughs> Don't talk to me. Uh-oh, he's got Red Dwarf on. It's like, he's hugging the pillow. Oh, something bad happened. I'm sorry, that's a lie. No one loves me. I have no girlfriend. (laughs) We didn't see that. A sneak surprise coming in. Yeah, it's a red dwarf. What is a favorite video game or video game series of yours? Are you a gamer? Do you like to game? I do game. I am a weird, just like film, if I game, it's because I'm into the story. Yeah. I would say the one that has most been under my skin the last few years is Outer Wilds. Sci-fi one, of course. Yeah. Uh, of what? all the strange little planets in the world desperately loved that game uh this is going to be interesting because uh we both rank ourselves pretty high on this uh number four what is your nerd level on a scale of one to ten? One being not really nerd at all 10 ultra nerd define the difference between a nerd and a geek oh that's well i mean de- technically you can be nerdy about kind of anything uh mm-hmm. well you can geek out of anything so i don't know we kind of make i think geek and nerd we kind of this podcast make a little synonymous at times because to me i i feel like this is an important distinction to answer your question that we need to draw out because i always described one as being deep into fandom and the other as having some degree of actual measurable expertise on a subject the ner- i'd say nerd for me is someone that i mean there's a, enough knowledge of a material but you are excited for a fandom i would say probably more than geeking out I would say as fandom goes, I barely have my toe into the pool of nerddom. Okay. I would say as obsession with pop culture and science and media goes, I am an elite level nerd. Okay. But I am not someone who has any particular connection to any fandom. Most of that stuff is something where I get bored with it very quickly, but I like to sit out of the porch of a glass of wine and a cigar and listen to a podcast about astrophysics. That's my kind of nerddom. That doesn't mean I don't still love Rick and Morty, but the idea (laughs) of people who are obsessed with Pickle Rick, those people scare me. (laughs) 
Well, our last question for you, Simpson, is we love to do impressions on this show. Yes. Give If you have one, give us your best impression or an impression of anybody, character, voice, whatever. Well, 90% of your audience is not going to get this reference. Okay. But if they've ever watched Red Dwarf. <laughs> Here we go. It's Red Dwarf. <laughs> uh, yes. So what do you think of Wilma? Wilma Flintstone? Yeah. Do you think Wilma's sexy? In all seriousness. I think Wilma Flintstone is the most desirable woman who ever lived. What do you think of Betty? Betty Rebel? Yeah. Well, I would go with Betty, but I'd be thinking of Wilma. This is crazy. We're nuts. Why are we talking about going to bed with Wilma Flintstone? You're right. This is an insane conversation. Yeah, she'll never leave Fred and we know it. <laughs> That is yeah, there we go, folks. And the cat from Red Dwarf. We're gonna have one person write in that's like, I knew that reference. It's gonna be the Captain wow. America meme. I got yeah. that one. Yeah, finally, that. Se- scenes at seasons after seasons finally got Red Dwarf that in one. there. So yeah. thank you. Well, thank love you. it. If you ever want to do a fan cast on Red Dwarf, just give me a call. <laughs> we'll have you back. We'll have to do a, a binge of it. We'll have to because it's one I've always wanted to watch, but um if people want to uh, follow you on social media, if you have a website, uh, where can people see you? Well, the best place to see me is on my website, which is stimpsonsneed.com. Uh, easy to find, and it connects to all my other social media. Now, I am one of those early adopter fellows who likes to get into new software, and I very recently got into this app called Twitter. Like I said, early adopter right here. Uh, I have all of eight followers. It's, you know, delicious. But Stimson Sneed, if you want to find me on Twitter, where I will proceed to ignore you because I hate Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So folks. the better place is probably my website. Don't respond. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> I know. I feel like I have someone that has Twitter and never uses it. You can also find my stuff on Instagram, but stimsonsneed.com is the best place to check me out. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was such a pleasure yeah. to have you on and, and chat about film. It was such it was such a blast. Absolutely. Thank you so much, guys. This was a lot of fun. Of course. Thank you. I'll have you back soon and keep up with your amazing success. Yeah. Congrats. Best of luck with Tim Travers, man. We hopefully one day get to see it. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was that was incredible. And like I know we, we said earlier, it's always every guest we have on here, they have some sort of love or passion um, for the industry or whatnot. But for someone who has been over 10 years in the industry, and he doesn't show any, you know, it's just this excitement about him. Like he's still every day. And it was actually, you know what I really, the biggest takeaway I got from him, not only his hard work, but I love the fact that his opinions on television and film and, you know, kind of like, obviously he has a very niche taste in shows, but when he was kind of talking about, you know, what he thinks about, you know, TV and, and as opposed to film, it was very interesting because again, as we said, there's been so many changes, but you know, we see one side, but when you're on the other side of the camera and you're creating it, you know, you, I think, tend to be more critical and a little bit indifferent sometimes to other mediums. Well, yeah, I think, I think a lot of filmmakers, they having skills in the trade, they kind of know when you could see something flawed or something that was okay. We just had to kind of get by with what we had. And yes, I really, I did really take his, uh, his thought on, he prefers movies because they have endings. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen the frustration with television of, okay, we know they're going to have multiple seasons. So we're not really going to get an ending ending. We're getting a somewhat ending or a cap to the season. But 
I mean, Game of Thrones case in point did not stick the landing. I, and I agree with him too on that. I always felt that what the plot points were in that last season were what the story was going to eventually turn into. Daenerys yeah. going crazy and killing everybody. It was not a surprise. Yeah, it was uh, the bread. But it was to... rushed. It was yeah. one of those, they did six episodes instead of 10. And what could have happened if they had four more episodes and really spread it out. But yeah, he's someone I feel like we definitely want to have back on the podcast just Absolutely. to talk about um, anything film-based. Red, red we sure. are going to do, I'm telling you now, Stimson, <laughs> you're listening. We are going to eventually do a Red Dwarf uh breakdown and yeah i love that that's like his favorite show and you can quote the whole thing so uh definitely folks once again go check out stimsonsneed.com to see everything about him his projects and what's coming up and thanks for listening today to the potential podcast we'll catch you next time and cut that's a wrap thanks for listening to the potential podcast you can follow us on instagram and facebook at the potential podcast or on twitter at the potential pod Or you can email us. Send us your positive feedback and thoughts, suggestions, and more through our email, thepotentialpodcast at yahoo.com. I'm your host, Chris Dewar. And I'm your host, Taylor Sokol. Stay tuned for more episodes on pop culture, entertainment, and nerdum. And remember, know know your your potential. potential.